0: On April 19th, 1995, a domestic terrorist named Timothy McVeigh carried out a plot to detonate a bomb at a federal building in Oklahoma City. 90 minutes after the bomb went off, about 80 miles away, a state trooper pulls over a car. The car had a missing license plate. So this routine traffic stop, the the officer searches the car and he discovers an unlawful concealed weapon in the vehicle. And so the driver is arrested and temporarily held in prison. A few hours later, the FBI released what they knew would be a long shot in terms of trying to catch the Oklahoma City bomber. They released a sketch of his face. The sketch was quickly distributed throughout the state, and the trooper who made this routine traffic stop saw it. And the FBI sketch looked oddly like the man he had just arrested. So he he looked at it carefully, he examined it, and he thought it can't be. But just in case... I will hold the man for as long as I can. So he delayed releasing the suspect from jail, and it turns out he had unknowingly arrested Timothy McVeigh. And the arrest ultimately led to the identification and arrest of the Oklahoma City bomber. And despite the success of the sketch in that high-profile case, it turns out police sketches are notoriously difficult to get right. Why? Well, because they are almost completely dependent on a good description from an eyewitness. And in almost every case, people have a difficult time describing a person's appearance precisely and accurately. We tend to remember the face as a whole, but we don't really notice or pay attention to specific parts. So think of a person that you know, a person whose face you would never forget. Get their face in your mind, And now imagine you had to describe the exact details of their face. Just think about one small detail. Imagine you had to describe their nose. If somebody said, describe the shape of their nostrils, how would you do it? It's difficult because we don't tend to think of these precise details. Describing the details of a person's face, even someone we know well, would be incredibly difficult. And it is often that way with our sin. We we might be familiar with certain sins, but still have difficulty seeing them in our lives and identifying exactly where they show up. And wouldn't it be helpful if we had a perfectly reliable source who perfectly knows our hearts, who can describe or sketch in detail what our sin often looks like so we can identify it, arrest it, and repent of it to get it out of our lives. And in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, that's exactly what we have. As we come to God's word this morning, we're going to examine multiple sketches God gives us of a specific sin that easily shows up in our lives and our hearts. And that sin is this, boasting, boasting. To understand the world we are falling into as we turn to Jeremiah 9, it will help us to briefly consider the man the book is named after, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a faithful prophet who preached during some of the darkest days the nation of Judah had ever seen. For 40 years, Jeremiah would proclaim the word of God to a nation that is spiritually dark. God's people in the nation of Judah are clinging to their sin, Repeatedly rejecting God's gracious warnings, and they are rapidly approaching his judgment. And not only do they not respond rightly to God's message, but they hate God's messenger. Throughout Jeremiah's ministry, he is arrested, he is beaten, he's thrown into prisons and even into a well. The book is filled with dramatic attempts on his life, secret meetings between the prophet and the political leaders of Judah. So every faithful church member who has known discouragement in ministry finds encouragement in Jeremiah. Every believer who struggled with faithfulness in the midst of ungodliness finds an example in Jeremiah. Every Christian who has slowly become ensnared to sin finds a rebuke in Jeremiah. And every unbeliever who thinks judgment will not one day come finds a sober warning in Jeremiah. And to help you understand the tone of the book and to set the table for our text this morning, look with me at Jeremiah 9 verse 17. Jeremiah 9 verse 17 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. So at this time in history, there would be professional mourners who were employed to wail, to act out a season of intense sorrow. So God, through the prophet Jeremiah, urges his people to mourn because of the judgment that is coming. And verses 18 through 22 then describes the destruction and exile that is soon going to come through the armies of another nation called Babylon. And earlier in the chapter, Jeremiah provides us with an important insight into his audience. Look at Jeremiah 9 verse 3. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Look at verse 6. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah's words originally rang out to unbelieving people in an unbelieving nation who refused to know and follow the Lord. That's the problem. And our text, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, is the solution. These two verses puts a finger on the heart of unbelief. A finger on the heart not only of unbelief and what we would think of as unbelievers, but in us. This text examines us. It's going to show us ways that sin may, like a snake, curl up and rest in our hearts it encourages us and points us to the glories of our god and ultimately like a compass points us to the true north of god's amazing grace so with all of that in mind look with me at jeremiah 9 verses 23 and 24 thus says the lord let not the wise man boast in his wisdom let not the mighty man boast in his might and let not the rich man boast in his riches But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. From this text, God's word shows us two kinds of boasting, so that you will boast in the Lord, not in yourself or in your achievements. So first we will see the boasting God opposes, And second, the boasting God approves. We begin in verse 23 with the boasting God opposes. So as I read through the text, you probably noticed the theme, the word that comes up over and over again, boast. Our Lord speaks this word through Jeremiah five times in two verses. Don't boast in this, that's verse 23, and instead boast in that. Verse 24. So we need to ask a question up front. What does it mean to boast? Well, well, to boast is to admire. We often think of it as it's to brag. Biblically speaking, it's to praise. It, it speaks of what is high or lifted up in our hearts, in our words, and in our lives. So practically it refers to what you trust. What you boast in is what you trust in positively in scripture, we're called to boast or to praise or to have faith in the Lord. So the same Hebrew word is translated as praise in Jeremiah 20, 13. Sing to the Lord, praise, that is boast in the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. But then negatively in scripture, the wicked or unrighteous boast in their sin. Listen to Psalm 10, verse three. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. So in scripture, to boast is to be human. This morning, the question is not, do you boast? But what do you boast in? If you were to go to someone who knows you best, how would they answer this question about you? Who or what do you admire or lift up most In your life what do you really trust and depend on what would a person say about you well when Jeremiah 9 was written there was an incredible amount of wickedness in the nation of Judah the land was polluted with idols there was immorality there was corruption but in verse 23 the unbelieving heart of the nation is boiled down to this root cause that still dwells in our hearts today we easily boast in the wrong things so god shines a spotlight on three specific areas we are tempted to boast in that god opposes think of verse 23 like three police sketches of boasting these are profiles that we can look out for in our hearts and in our lives so here's our first sketch the wise man look at the beginning of verse 23 let not the wise man boast in his wisdom now face value that seems like a profile we want in our lives right Who among us doesn't want to be described as a wise man or a wise woman? Well, to see the kind of wisdom God opposes here, turn with me briefly to Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah 8, and look at verse 8. How can you say we are wise And the law of the Lord is with us. But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? The people of Judah had been given God's law. They had the scribes, the teachers who instructed them and applied the law. They had everything they needed to be wise but what was their problem? The scribes taught the scriptures. They just tweaked it a little bit. They they did what Jeremiah calls in verse 8, they used the lying pen, meaning they didn't just teach the law, they changed it. I'm curious, has anyone in here ever been to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C.? Okay, a few of you. If you ever get a chance to go, you should go. It's an incredible museum with incredible displays. And when I went a few years ago, they had on display what was called the Slave Bible. It was produced by an organization in the British Empire that aimed to convert African slaves. And it was distributed to slaves who were laboring in the Caribbean. But they didn't want those reading the Bible to get any inconvenient ideas, so the Slave Bible removed... Every part of scripture that made reference to freedom. So Exodus story where God's people are delivered from slavery in Egypt, gone. Just cut out. Passages in Exodus about kidnapping and selling other human beings being a crime, gone. Galatians 3.28, which says slaves and free are one in Christ, gone. They literally just changed the word of God to advance their own sinful ends. And that might seem like an extreme example, but it's like a person today who wants to follow God. They just don't want the parts about his wrath or the parts that aren't in step with our times or the parts where God causes people to live holy lives and shines a spotlight on our sin and calls us to repent. The lying pen just add, distort, subtly take away to fit our preferences. That's what's going on in Judah. The people wanted to be wise, they just didn't want their wisdom to come exclusively from the Lord. They wanted God's wisdom with a little dose of their own sprinkled on top. And well, what is the problem with that? Listen to how God describes the wisdom of men and the wisdom of nations in Isaiah 19, 11. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? How does our God regard the collected wisdom of Egypt and the nations? Senseless. James 3.15 describes this worldly wisdom this way. James 3.15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, and so those in Judah admired and gloried and boasted in their human wisdom. Like many today, they thought they were enlightened. So smart, so cultured, so advanced in knowledge, they could move past the sufficiency of what God says. This is wisdom that answers all of life's questions about God's word or about God's world apart from God's word. So where must we go to find wisdom? And I know in this church, all of you know the right answer to that question. Know God's wisdom, we go to God's word. We we don't look within ourselves, but outside of ourselves for true wisdom. We know that. So since we know that, let's go a level deeper. Is there any way you boast in your own wisdom or your own knowledge? Maybe you admire your own academic achievements, a degree, Maybe you subtly boast in the amount of knowledge you have in your own area of expertise. Or even more subtly, do you ever sinfully boast even in your knowledge of the Bible? Watch out for this because the wise man boasting in wisdom can easily mask itself as godliness. Do do you ever notice in yourself that you want to sound wise to others? Not to bring glory to God, but because it strokes your ego and makes you look good before men. Does it feel good to your pride when people in the church or in your life come to you? Look to you for answers. Comment how wise you are, how much you know. Guard your heart, lest you boast in your wisdom. That's our first sketch. Here's a second one, a second sketch of ungodly boasting. The mighty man. The mighty man, the middle of verse 23 in Jeremiah 9 continues, let not the mighty man boast in his might. So the first profile focuses on boasting and human thinking. The second one focuses on boasting and human strength. So this kind of person has sinful confidence in his or her abilities. They are self-sustaining. They trust in themselves. And God opposes this because it attributes to man strength an ability that is only found in him. Psalm 147 verse 10, God's delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of man. Judah trusted in her own military, in the nations, in herself. At the height of her depravity, the people trusted in anything but the Lord and it was all a false hope. Michael, uh, my son, is g- going to be three years old here soon. And he has three favorite words right now. Here are Michael's three favorite words. I got it. I got it. And he says it like this. I got it. I got it. No matter what it is. He thinks he's strong enough to do anything. So sometimes he'll be working out with me and we have a little garage gym and he'll try to lift up like a 50-pound dumbbell and he can't do it. I'll say, buddy, you can't do that yet. He'll no, I got it. I got it. And he'll try with all of his strength to pick it up. Why? He has plenty of confidence. He just doesn't have the actual ability to back that up yet. That's kind of like Judah. And it's often kind of like us as well. We we often show how easily we trust in our own might and our own abilities when life becomes hectic. Between kids and jobs and responsibilities and projects and countless other things, from the moment you get out of bed to the moment you go to sleep, you feel like you haven't stopped, right? Right? And when we have these seasons, when we feel overwhelmed or busy, what is often the first thing in life to go? Prayer, quality time with the Lord and his word. Why? Because we so easily trust in our own might. Because without even saying a word, with our actions, we boast in our own capacities. We become too busy to live as if we need God. And in so doing, with our actions, we boast in our might. Here's one more sketch of ungodly boasting in verse 23, a third sketch. The rich man, the rich man, look at the end of verse 23. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Jeremiah 5, 27 and 28 describes this sin in more detail in Judah. So Jeremiah 5, 27 and 28 says, Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. And this is appalling to the Lord. So he asks a rhetorical question in verse 29. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? The people and their wealth had grown fat, meaning wealthy, great in the eyes of man and appalling in the eyes of God. A person who boasts in silver, gold and dollars believes money is the root of all happiness, that money is the solution to all life's difficulties. And money is particularly easy to boast in because it provides so much stuff we enjoy. I mean, think about it. Money pays for smartphones. Money pays for vacations. Money buys, in a very real sense, comfort. The one who boasts in money thinks money is the key that opens the door to happiness, when in reality, to love and boast in money can easily be the key that opens the door straight to hell. To boast in our resources is to deny God as our true sustainer and provider. That's why our Lord and Savior said in Matthew six twenty four, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There are certain things in our lives that cannot exist side by side. We can't serve and live from money or anything else in this world for that matter and be subject to God at the same time. And it is very difficult to trust in the Lord to provide what we need when we think we already have everything we need. We don't need God to satisfy because at the end of the day, we are plenty satisfied in our stuff and our activities. Many professing Christians in America are lukewarm and have the spiritual heat of an ice cube because in our wealth and our comfort, we quite frankly move past the fact that we need God. And so it was in Judah. And the Lord, through Jeremiah, shows us just how bankrupt these three forms of boasting really are. And he describes boasting in detail in three different ways so we would see it and avoid it in our own lives and not be blind when these surface in our hearts. When Kristen and I were in college, I once went to pick her up on a date. Now, I want to be clear, this was not a special occasion. This was just a normal date. And so we're we're getting together to spend time together. And at that time, and some of you might say at this time, I did not exactly have fashion sense. Fashion was not my focus at that point in my life. And so I go to pick up Kristen, and I'm dressed in a black T-shirt, baggy Navy basketball shorts. And I don't remember what I was wearing, like shoes, but it was probably like brown flip-flops, knowing me. So I, I show up, and Kristen sees me, and you all know Kristen. Kristen doesn't have an intimidating bone in her body. Kristen is gentle. She's short. And so she sees me, and she cocks her head, and in the sweetest way she can, she says, oh, is that what you're wearing? No, that's not what I'm wearing. Apparently not. So I quickly run home and to our, my dorm, and I get changed, and it all worked out, and we got married. But the point is, I was blind, and she pointed out to me in her own words, do you realize how foolish you look? That's what verse 23 does. Verse 23 is the Lord pointing at our sin, sketching it for us and saying, do you realize how foolish you look? If as one who claims to trust in me, you boast in these things, and yet how easily we can be led astray to boast and trust in ourselves. And here's one more way to see if you subtly boast in any of these three before we move on. In your life, how do you respond when one of these three areas of your life is not what you want it to be? Let me explain what I mean by that. For example, how do you respond when your physical might, your strength, your body fails? Be it illness, or a diagnosis, or an injury, When that happens, do those around you see you collapse into grumbling and discontentment? Or do you respond with godliness? A sinful response likely indicates you trust in your might more than you may realize. Or what about money? Parents, if there is some sort of financial trial, or unexpected bill, or uncertainty, do your kids see you get frustrated and anxious? Or do they see you trust in the Lord? Dads, we need to examine ourselves with this. If you had a bad day at work and you couldn't solve some issue with your own wisdom and your own knowledge and your own ability during the workday, when you come home and you walk in the door with your actions, you are going to tell your wife and your kids what you boast in. Do you boast in the Lord? Do you trust in the Lord? When the stresses of life press in on these three areas, do we respond with ungodliness, which reveals boasting in our hearts, or with godliness, which reveals our trust in the Lord? So verse 23 is the problem. That's sin. That's the foolish boasting that God opposes. So now that we've seen these sketches of sin in verse 24, we're going to see a sketch of the solution. So that brings us to our second heading, the boasting God approves. The boasting God approves. Look at the first word in Jeremiah 9, verse 24. But, contrast. What God is about to say stands in complete contrast and even opposition to verse 23. If you want to think of it in the kind of terms we use in the New Testament, in Ephesians 4, for example, verse 23 is what we must put off. Verse 24 is what we must put on. These are polar opposites. Like a magnet, if our lives are consumed with the sinful boasting in verse 23, it will repel the godly boasting in verse 24. And in the same way, if we're intentional to boast in what God wants, it will naturally put to death and push away the kind of boasting God hates in our lives. So here is a picture of the boasting God loves. This is what God wants you to trust in. Christian, this is what God wants you to brag about to admire and make much of in your life. We see two causes for boasting in verse 24. Boast in who God is and boast in what God does. Boast in who God is and boast in what God does. So first, boast in who God is. Verse 24 says, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. To understand and to know are different words that communicate the same idea. It means to have personal insight, intimate knowledge of God. As believers, we know who he is, what he loves, what he's like, how he has revealed himself. And we often talk about knowing God, and we should, but don't let how common this is cause you to lose your awe of it. Would we never become numb to this or move past this? This is an astounding truth about our God. He is holy and majestic and high and lifted up, and yet God is near to his people. And he desires to be known by them, not merely academically, not to be known like you memorize a chart in a, in a textbook, but to be known personally, intimately, The word knows is also found in Jeremiah 1 verse 5. Speaking about Jeremiah, the Lord said to him in chapter 1 verse 5, Behold, I formed you in the womb. I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God knows those who are his. He calls us by name. He sets his love on us and he saves us. John 17, verse 3, the Lord Jesus said about his followers, and this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is part and parcel of having eternal life, to know God through his son by his spirit. That is to know God with your mind, to embrace him with your heart, and to follow him in your life. We know the one who is inexhaustible. We will never dive to the bottom of the depths of who God is. And is that not the joy and the thrill of the Christian life? We know him in Christ, and we grow in him and the knowledge of him day after day. In some ways, this is like a marriage. On a wedding day, you you know your spouse you're in a relationship with them, but then years in, after so much time together and memories and trials and maybe a couple kids thrown into the mix, you know them even more deeply. You know them in a way that goes further than you did before. And regardless of if you're married five years or five decades, you grow more and more in your knowledge and love for them. It's always going deeper. And the day you stop trying to know your spouse more deeply, is the day your marriage dies. It's the same in our relationship with the Lord. We want to grow deeper, more intimate in our knowledge of him. So do you know God? Have you seen the vast riches of his grace found in Jesus Christ and trusted in him and come to know him? And if you do, do you seek to understand him more and more and delight in getting to know him more and more on a daily basis? This morning, how does your pursuit of the Lord compare to your pursuit of anything else in your life? But we're we're to boast not only in who God is, but also in what God does. Verse 24 continues, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understand and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices or who does steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight declares the Lord. In a culture and in a nation that is polluted by idols, God cries out through the prophet, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. There is only one God who can truly be known. There is only one God worthy of your praise and adoration and boasting. The God who was and is and will be forever. The God who." does who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. God's actions overflow from his nature. He practices steadfast love because he is love. He does justice because in his very being, he is just. He practices righteousness because he is perfectly righteous in and of himself. His steadfast love is his loyal love, his covenant-keeping love, his loving kindness, your translation might have. Jeremiah 31, verse three, God promises his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love and therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. Exodus 34, verse six, this is how God revealed himself to Moses. Exodus 34, six, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. To say God practices steadfast love is to say he will never leave you or forsake you. It is to say you can depend on his word. You can trust his promises. You can know he will finish the good work he begins in you. Justice and righteousness taken together assures us our God governs all the earth justly. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot ignore evil. And all that he does in the world and in your life God is good. He is good. And while man's standards are constantly changing and bending, he is the perfect standard of righteousness and justice that is unchanging. Unlike the news, unlike the decisions of men that are so easily biased and based in false information, our king always practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness. Psalm 119, 137 summarizes well, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. And back in our text, in Jeremiah 9, verse 24, in these things I delight. What does God delight in? These things, both in himself and in his people. Meaning, because God practices these things, he takes pleasure in seeing them in the lives of those who follow him. Just listen to how this should have impacted the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you. According to your tribes, they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not prefer, pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Why did God command his people to judge with righteous judgment? Why does God tell them to not pervert justice or to, or to show partiality? Because they were to reflect him. And that's who he is. To boast in the Lord is to obey him. It is to reflect him, who he is and what he is like to those around us. And by the time we come to Jeremiah 9, the nation had completely lost sight of this. Their their devotion had faded. Their standards of justice had conformed to the world. They boasted in anything but god so an obvious question rings out from verse 24 to our lives this morning do you boast in the lord do you do you adore him do you praise him not just at church during the time of singing but in your home do those around you see in your actions in your words that you adore christ and what is the main way we boast in the lord today Or asked another way, specifically, where do we most clearly see God's love and justice and righteousness meet? Where do these three cords weave together in a way that so clearly should drive us to boast in and trust in the Lord today? Well, turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We read this earlier in the service, and we saw that in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul begins making the point that the message of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is foolish to natural man. And to make his point, he quotes Jeremiah 9, verse 24. Let me read a portion of 1 Corinthians 1 again, beginning in verse 27. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, Jeremiah nine twenty four, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our God has chosen to use a foolish gospel to save those the world considers foolish people. When I was in seminary, I had a class And a student raised his hand to ask a question. Now, I just want to emphasize, this is not some atheist. This is a seminary student. And so he raises his hand, and the professor calls on him, and he has a bit of a smug tone, the student, and and he asks about Genesis. He says, I know we believe God created Adam and Eve, but I mean, a talking snake? That just seems silly. And he asked the professor, do we really believe that? And the professor just looked at him, and the class went silent because we all knew what was probably about to happen. And I can't quote the professor's exact answer, but it went something like this. Oh, I'm sorry. You find it difficult to believe in a talking snake. How about to believe that through one act of rebellion, Sid spread to and corrupted all people who were ever born? How about that a group of people walked around a wall which fell down? How about that a donkey once spoke? How about that a fish once swallowed a prophet and he lived? And to the professor's answer, I would add this. And how about the most outrageous claim of all? That the infinite God, the Son, clothed himself in human flesh and was born of a virgin and he lived a perfect life as a Jewish man and that he dies a horrific bloody, humiliating death on the cross. And on the cross, God's steadfast love and his justice and his righteousness meet. And his love pours out as he sacrifices himself for sinners. And his justice is served as the wrath we deserve falls upon his son. And the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, stands in our place, intercedes on our behalf, and that by faith, his righteousness is now gifted to whosoever will call upon his name. How about that? If you are just working from the perspective of human wisdom, from naturalism, from what sounds impressive to the elites and the influencers influencers of this world, do you realize how dumb that sounds? How foolish that is to the eyes and the ears of the world? And even more foolishly, that God comes not to save the righteous but sinners? That He comes not to call the strong but the weak? That he extends his grace and his love not towards those who have it all together, but to those who realize that apart from him, all they deserve is hell. This is utter foolishness to most people. But if you are a believer, does your heart not soar when you consider the depths, the riches of his grace, the power of this gospel? the light of the gospel compared to the darkness of our sin? And why has God seen fit to do it this way? So that in the first century, and now, and 10,000 years into eternity, every blood-bought sinner who is saved by Jesus Christ will declare this message is the power of God. And God, and God alone will get the glory. And no one will boast in anything except the Lord. So we boast in Christ because Christ is our righteousness and our redemption. This message strips us bare. It requires us to boast in God alone. It forces us to come to him empty-handed, or we cannot come at all only through christ can we truly know god and be saved from our sin so this morning as we close i want to ask one more time do you know him and if not run to him realize you have nothing to boast in apart from who he is no work no accomplishment the gospel reduces every single cause of human boasting to ash ephesians 2 8 and 9 For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, and that is the result of works, so that no one may boast. And to those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, would we boast in and exalt God for what he has done? And would this gospel keep us lowly and humble so that we can say, along with Paul in Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our lord jesus christ by which the world has been crucified to me and i to the world let's pray lord i thank you for this text and the privilege it has been to dive into it and to study it lord i pray that this passage would examine us and be like a mirror that shows us ways that even, even as those who know you and that cling to your grace, that we subtly boast in ourselves? Would we never boast in our knowledge or in our own capacities or abilities or in our wealth or the ways that you've blessed us and what we have? Lord, help us to boast in you and in you alone. Would we be known as people who reflect you to those around us because we are humble and because we realize all we have is Christ, and it's in his name I pray.